Matthew chapter 5, if you will turn there, please. We are continuing in the sermons through the Gospel of Matthew this year. Um, Matthew chapter 5, again, is the beginning of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to be working through Matthew chapter 5 through 7 and Jesus' Sermon here for several more weeks, probably a couple more months to get through what Jesus has to teach us here. And it's, it's not that we're trying to rush through it at all. I want us to make sure that we, we soak in and meditate on and, and chew on the, the delicious Word of God here. Amen? Amen. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 27, is where we are today. And I want to ask if, you, if you're able to stand, let's do so in reverence for the reading of God's Word. Jesus, continuing in his sermon, uh, speaking about the differences between what the law says and what the spirit of the law means, now comes to a very, uh, a very important passage. Verse 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Let's pray. Dear Father God Almighty, we pause after the reading of your word, and we want, Lord, to hear you clearly. Lord, your son Jesus speaks truth in all that he does, and I thank you, Lord, for this record of the Gospels that we can meditate upon, that we can listen to, that we can pray through and learn from. And so, God, at this hour, this is a time, Lord, that we pause and we desire to hear directly from you. And so, God, I invite you to speak into each and every one of us through these words. These are your words. These are your meanings. This is showing us what the kingdom of heaven is like. And, Lord, if you have called us into that state, if you have called us into Christ to be redeemed, if we are new in his image, we live newly and and holy lives And so, God, I pray that you would cause these words to resonate in each and every one of us, not as condemnation, but as awakening. And if we need some condemnation, Lord, I pray you would walk us through that to the point of grace and restoration. I pray, God, that these words, if they are resonating directly to anyone in this room, Lord, that they would know that you love them, and that there is hope, and that you would show them the truth of your beauty that we often distort. And teach us, Father, what it is we truly desire. It's not our flesh, it's not lust, it is your presence, it is your glory, it is your beauty. And I pray, God, that right now you would let that truth be known. Use this time for your glory, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Please have a seat. Very interesting passage of Scripture. It's a passage of Scripture that is often studied in men's Bible study groups. 
I've never been invited to a ladies' Bible study group, so I don't know if this is ever covered there in any way or not. But um, Now, I have been allowed to partake in the ladies' Bible study lunches from time to time. They, they, they'll let me eat, right? And that's good. So. Uh, so what I'm going to be speaking on today is going to be primarily from a male perspective of this, but then I'm also going to try to see what is it that our Lord wants us to see, not just through the genders, but universally as his people. What is it that Jesus is speaking about here? We have to remember that Jesus, at this point of his sermon, he is really, the latter part of chapter 5, Jesus is really contrasting and showing examples between what the rabbinic teachings of the law, the rabbis of his time had developed a tradition of teaching that had its basis in the Old Testament Mosaic law, but then it was expanded uh, beyond comprehension to tradition and legalism and the way to holiness is to do things and to the point of even if when you sinned, there was harsh consequences. And Jesus is not diminishing that at all. We have to remember that. That's what he said in verses 17 through 20. He did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. He came to fulfill it. So when we come to this text in verses 27 through 30, we have to understand what Jesus is saying here. Verse 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. A clear directive to Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, and Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 18, the Ten Commandments, you shall not commit adultery. In my generation, growing up from the 1970s, 80s, and all the way up to here, it seems like, and I didn't live before then, but I've heard people who of, of a previous generation tell me they have never seen our society become so perverted ever before. It is, from that point on, it, we've become a sexualized society more so than ever. And I, I see a lot of heads nodding. It seems like there was a time in our country, in our society, that there were standards of morality when it came to men and women together that you didn't even talk about these things in public because it was something intimate and private. Yet we... I think we can all agree we're in a state where their morality in this area has been tossed to the wind. Anything goes. If it feels good, do it. We justify our physical urges in ways that Jesus is speaking to something here that is very important. This passage continues really this theme of human value. If we look at uh, the last week's sermon about anger, when we are angry with another, what are we literally doing? We are literally being angry at the image of God in them. You could literally take it to that image. If we are angry with anyone unjustly. Our anger can lead to murder. And what are we doing? We're murdering them in our hearts. Same thing here when it comes to committing adultery. Jesus makes a very clear teaching. Adultery is not merely a physical act. It is a heart issue. It's how we look upon each other as fellow human beings. How do we value one another as we are made in God's image? If God made us in His image, we have a value right there that is above 
every other creature on the planet. He has made us to reflect His glory. He has made us to serve Him in this theater of creation, is what I have heard it read before. We are here to show all of the world, all of the created order, and even each other, who God is. And when we look upon one another in the way that Jesus is speaking about here, we are looking upon someone's physical body as if they are not even valuable. They are just merely objects of consumption. Let's ponder this for a second. The Old Testament law was very clear. Adultery was something that was never to be tolerated. The penalties for adultery are harsh. In Deuteronomy chapter 22, we see in verse 22, if a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. So shall you purge the evil from Israel. This this adultery was seen as something that was so poisonous to the holiness of God's people that when this were to be caught, then both parties were to suffer stoning, death. That, that, That tells us how important this sin is. We do not want to diminish that in the least here. Now, am I saying that if you're in this room and you have somehow fallen into this sin that we're supposed to take you out of the church building right now, surround you and stone you to death? No, we're not going to do that. Absolutely not. But the the sincerity of this, this way of thinking and acting, this sin is something that poisons us to the point that Jesus is making it very clear. This is something not to take lightly. This is not just some physical thing that doesn't have impact. It is something that is serious and actually deadly. Jesus emphasizes here in his Sermon on the Mount, not the letter of the law, but he wants to drive home the spirit of God's word and his law. The the letter of the law means, okay, we have to read it literally. It literally says they have to die, so we literally have to go kill them, and literally let's go do it. But the spirit of that law is more important to Jesus. He's not saying that the penalties should be weakened. Actually, the penalty of adultery and fornication and perversion is so drastic. I mean, physical death is minor compared to the greater consequences of our soul here. We're talking about the health of our soul. So the the true spirit of God's law is that the truth of our inner self, the very truth of who we are as made in God's image, is more in obedience in from who we are as people of God is more important than outward obedience that we can fake. Remember? So you could actually commit many of these sins in secret and think that everything is okay because no one knows. It's just between me and whoever it is I'm with, or whoever I'm fantasizing about, doesn't hurt anybody else, so what does it matter? You ever heard that? Heard that justification, that argument? Well, I'm in my house, I'm doing my thing, it's not harming you, what matter? What, what's the big deal? Jesus is making a very important point here, all throughout chapter 5, and especially with this sin of, of adultery and lustful intent and perversion, these kind of thoughts lead to actions, all of it, is harmful to us all. 
It's not something to be kept in secret. The truth of God's law is that we are to be God's people, not just outwardly, but inwardly. Who we are on the inside matters. And what we do on the outside affects who we are on the inside and vice versa. We, we, it is often, it's easy to remember that who we are inside, our very personality, our very being, our very soul affects what we do on the outside. But what Jesus is also pointing out here in verses 27 through 30 about adultery and lust is that what we do on the outside clearly affects the spirit as well. We cannot distinguish the two. We cannot separate the two. The spirit and the body affect one another. And why is this important? Because it, it, it is a, it's a, it's a lie that what the body does does not affect the spirit. That's a lie. And what Jesus is pointing out here is this physical urge that God has given us as biological... I mean, God has given us this biological reproductive drive for a healthy reason. Think about it. If Adam and Eve didn't produce children and their children didn't produce children and their children didn't produce children, you and I wouldn't be here. There's a reason for the physical drive that God creates in our biology. It's not just some physical, chemical thing. Jesus is pointing this out here in this teaching. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul is going to help us understand this a little bit. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul's uh, letter to the Corinthians is a rich, rich letter that uh, really just drives home the importance of ethical living, but not just for actions or obedience of the law, but to give glory to the Spirit of God. Look here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Verse 13. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. If you are making any notes, I would underline that one verse right there. That right there makes it very clear through God's word and his intent, the spirit and the body are effective to one another. You cannot isolate the two. There are, we all agree, right? We are all made up of the physical stuff and we also are made up of the spiritual stuff. Would you agree? And oftentimes we make the mistake of thinking that the soul or the spirit and the body are two separate things that do not matter to one another. But, oh, what a lie. I mean, even to the point, let's think about this. If you've ever been to a funeral, and I've even, this, these are words of comfort, but there's also something there that we need to be cautious of. When we look at our dearly departed loved ones at a funeral and we see their body in the, in the uh, coffin, words of comfort is, we look and say, that's not really Aunt Sally. The real Aunt Sally is in heaven. Have you ever heard those words? Well, yes, but no, because that really is Aunt Sally. Her body is her, and her soul is her. It's both. It's not that the real Sally 
is not laying there in the coffin. Yes, it is. That's why when the body is harmed, it hurts us not just physically, it hurts us emotionally. It hurts our soul. When we see someone physically harmed, does it hurt you on the inside too? Does it? I mean, why do we weep when we watch suffering of others? Because we know that there's a spiritual harm there as well. The soul and the body are not separate. Why is Paul making this emphasis and this point in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 13? Because he's writing to the, the Corinthian church, and they were wrestling with this common idea of the Greek-speaking world that the biological functions of the body are just that, biological, nothing else. The body is just the body. What does it matter? And, and, and that idea of that time crept into the church as 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 the Greek-speaking world was coming into the church, they were bringing these ideas into the church, and Paul has to teach against that. Do not be confused. The spirit and the body matter. When he says food is for the stomach and the stomach is for the food, that was a very common phrase that was used to teach this idea that the biological functions of the body were just that and nothing more. This is why whenever we do eat... Yeah, how many people? We're good Baptists, right? We like to eat. And when we eat, when we, eat we want to eat well. Hallelujah. Because that's a reflection of the marriage supper of the Lamb in heaven when we get there, right? We want to, we want Miss Jerry's food. We want Miss Geraldine's food. We want, right? We want to be blessed. We want to gain about 10 pounds. We want to, you know. What is, when, when we put food into our stomach, is it just for the body? I think it also affects our soul. Choices of our nutrition, I think, matter. Can we agree? That's why Paul is pointing this out. He's using this as example of the stomach and the food as pointing to this false teaching of the day that the body and the spirit don't matter. That's wrong. They, they are so intertwined that if the biological functions of the body were just that and nothing else, then there would be no harm. You could do whatever you want physically, and it doesn't hurt anybody. It's just a temporary pleasure. And what's wrong with pleasure? That is a hedonism. You ever heard the term hedonism? Right? Uh, Solomon in the Old Testament practiced hedonism. He experimented with hedonism and realized how worthless and empty it was. The idea of pleasure for pleasure's sake was a philosophy of hedonism that if it felt good and it was pleasurable, it must be good and it's worth pursuing. Likewise, the opposite, if it felt bad and it didn't feel good and it didn't bring you pleasure, then you avoid it. That was hedonism at a core. And so bringing that into the church was so poisonous. So if the functions of the body are just biological and nothing else, then the sexual urges, the biological reproductive aspects of our body then would be just physical, nothing more. Just like sleep or eat. Like when we sleep or eat, there's nothing more to that. It's just what we have to do is in our physical bodies. And so the, the biological functions of the body for reproduction, according to this idea, that's all it is, nothing more. I remember uh, years ago, this was actually four years ago, I taught my very first college-level course four years ago. And I was 
educated by my students in these things that I, and I never expected to. We were talking about hedonism in my philosophy class and what that entailed. And so this idea came up with uh, friends with benefits. That's the phrase. I had never heard that phrase before. And if you don't know what that is, talk to some college students, they'll tell you. I'm not going to go into details. It's basically the idea that relationships are just physical. Friends with benefits. I'll just let you ponder that. That is such a lie that our young people are being told that it's just physical. It doesn't mean anything. How many of us know? I mean, when you talk to someone who has gone through a horrendous physical sexual trauma, we know the outcome of that is not just physical. It's emotional. It's spiritual. It destroys the very image of God within them. And Jesus here in the Sermon on the Mount drives this point home. We know that the resurrection of the body at the end times, at the time of divine judgment, shows that the body is more than just biological. The church has a truth that in the end times when we stand before the Lord in final judgment, our bodies are not just flesh. There is something more to that. We are resurrected in a new glorious body. You see what we're seeing here? Because the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. If the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, then our body belongs to our Lord and our body is not ours to decide to do with what we wish. Next time you decide to go and satisfy the sexual lust that's burning up within you, are you just satisfying some physical, biological thing? Our bodies are temples of the Lord. It doesn't belong to us. We do not have the right to decide what we do with the biological functions of our being. We don't have that right, is what we're saying here. Now, the idea of adultery here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 and 28, Jesus says here, citing the Old Testament, citing uh, the, the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. He goes further and makes it clear in verse 28, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The idea of adultery, I mean, at its basic core is um, not being faithful to your spouse. At the root of adultery, of course, is, is, is the marriage covenant. The husband cheats on the wife, or the wife may cheat on the husband. Now, Jesus is speaking about men looking upon women here, but I'm not going to let you ladies get off on it, off of this real quick. It's men and women both can commit adultery and break that marriage covenant. Now, next week we'll be looking at the passage on divorce, and this idea of adultery will come up there again. That's a different and more expanded understanding, and we're going to look at that deeper. But this idea of adultery at, fundamentally, legally, deals with the marriage covenant. And marriage is the appropriate expression of human biological reproduction. 
It's more than that. But marriage serves fundamentally, practically, and even uh, gloriously as the appropriate place where these biological desires are to be practiced and expressed and explored as God intended and designed. And any time you take this out of the context of God's will, you are destroying it. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul really uncovered We're not going to look at that today, but if you're taking notes, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul really goes in depth about the value of the marriage covenant and how it should not be um, perverted, distorted, harmed. Proverbs chapter 5 actually speaks about rejoicing in the wife of your youth. You ever been around a newlywed couple in their 20s? Y'all have been around them folks? They're just giddy and silly with each other, aren't they? <laughs> and we just laugh and we, we actually find pleasure in a young married couple newly together, exploring life together and growing together. It is God's design of beautiful human relationship and that should never be distorted or perverted for our sexual, selfish cravings. God designed the marriage covenant to give, to express His glory in this theater of creation. We are to be together with one another and growing up together in life as a reflection to the world of what the relationship is between Christ and His church. Marriage is not just some simple desire. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And I'm actually encouraged that I am, I am encountering more and more 20-somethings of the next generation coming behind me who are taking marriage covenants seriously to the point that even if maybe they've kissed and hugged and maybe done some things in the dating relationship, when, when the engagement period starts, they are realizing how serious their marriage covenant is and they agree together not to kiss, not to hold hands until the day they get married. I'm seeing that more and more among young people and that encourages me. I have a niece who was just married a couple of weeks ago. How long were they engaged, Evelyn? A year or more. They committed to one another that they were going to purposefully not be together. Well, they're going to see each other. They're going to hang out, but they're not going to kiss until that wedding day. So I see hope that the coming generation behind us are really waking up to this and saying there's something important about the marriage covenant. This is why Jesus is making very clear in His Sermon on the Mount that this idea of adultery is not I mean, it is between the marriage, it's a breaking of the marriage covenant, but he, he makes it very clear in verse 28, the spirit of God's law goes deeper than just literally uh, being obedient and practicing good marriage practices. He's saying, verse 28, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, men, let me give you some hope here. Can we just agree that men are motivated by sight? Don't take much for us. If it's beautiful, we're attracted to it. Our eyes are whoop, right? Jesus is not talking about a casual glance or a casual awareness of something beautiful. 
I mean, the very nature of beauty is that which is attractive for a reason, to grab your attention. God's beauty is that. His glory and His holiness, His beauty that we read in Psalm 27 is that exactly to draw us to Him. And so the very idea of beauty, the very thing of beauty, is to draw us and grab our attention. So we cannot be held accountable for paying attention or noticing something that is beautiful. None of us can. We should. The question here is in verse 28, is when you look upon a woman with lustful intent, lustful intent, the idea here, there, is looks upon a woman with lustful intent is this idea of continually looking. It's not a, oh, I'm, oh, wow, that's a beautiful person walking by, or that's a beautiful thing I just noticed. It's not just an, an awareness of beauty. It is a purposeful, intentional, continuous stare so that you dwell on it. It's not a glance. It's not even just an appreciation for beauty. The word here, the Greek word here, literally means to continually, constantly look. Because when that happens, you're meditating on it. You're thinking about it. Wow. What, what? And then fantasies start coming up. That's the issue. Jesus is making very clear in verses 20, in verse 28. Anyone who looks with lustful intent, constantly ogling, staring, thinking, You've committed adultery in your heart. Now, Jesus is talking about men here. But this is not just a warning for men. Can I cautiously advise the ladies in the room? And I, I, I am shocked of hearing this out of young women more and more. They talk about men in a lot of ways worse than I've ever heard a construction worker talk about a woman. There are some ladies I've heard talk about men in ways that I thought, what? If a man had said that? I'm hearing war and war. It's, it's awful what I hear sometimes. But think about this, lady. ladies. You're not necessary. And, and again, I'm not a lady. So correct me if I'm stepping in the wrong territory here. But I do understand the differences between the genders. But ladies, I would argue that you are less uh, attracted to the looks of a man and more attracted to the idea of being together, perhaps. Maybe what he does, who he is, what he does. Is that perhaps what draws you more? I'm not saying, I mean, guys, we've got to take a bath, we've got to shave, we've got to brush our teeth, right? That's a good thing, men. Go do that, okay? There's no, if you want a girlfriend, guys, you've got to take a bath and brush your teeth, all right? Comb your hair. No woman wants to go out with a scruffy, old, ugly, stinky, right? Now, I see some men with long hair. I, that's not, I'm not saying go get a haircut. No, that's all I'm saying. You're, you're great. Your mama loves you. You're, you, you go out, anyway, right? I had hair like you when I was in my 20s, okay? It just fell out, okay? No condemnation on long hair at all. But, lady, you want a man to be clean. You want him to be, look like somebody. And I thank my wife, Rhonda, for making me the man I am today. She destroyed, she actually threw out all my clothes, my bachelor clothes, and started over from scratch and made me the man I am today. <laughs> Taught me what it meant to look like somebody. But, ladies, let's think about this. You may or may not have the same visual attraction that men do, but, ladies, can we also be honest here? Romance novels are a multi billion dollar industry. 
Romance novels make more money than the porn industry. We'll let that settle. The ideas of the heart, that's what we're talking about. Whether you read romance novels or not, or you, I mean, back in the day, the soap operas used to attract all of the housewives. Right? I don't know. If, are soap operas even still important anymore? I don't know. But ladies, are we, are, am I touching on something there? Romance, fantasies are just as horrible as a man's lustful gaze and intent. There is no difference between the two. That's what Jesus is talking about here. The penalty here is the truth. The adultery of the heart. It is not the lustful looking that causes the corruption of the heart as much as it is the corruption of the heart that causes the lustful looking. That's something to ponder. Provocative dress as well. Why is it, ladies, you want to look beautiful? And I'll please continue to do that. C.S. Lewis wrote, and I just found this this summer, and I was just floored when I read this. C.S. Lewis says that the beauty of the female is a gift to us all. And that's why the marriage covenant, ladies, the beauty that you possess that, let's just admit it, men, we're not, we're not pretty. Sometimes you wonder why in the world that beautiful female woman is even with that, what? Is that even a guy? But the beauty of a woman, this is what C.S. Lewis says, the beauty that God has given you as ladies is a gift for us all. But more specifically, in the marriage relationship, your beauty is a gift to your husband. And it should be shared with him with that intent. It's not my beauty. It's not my vanity. It's not who am I, who is looking at me. It is God has made me this way in this gender for a purpose to reflect his glory as beauty, as a gift to my husband. And that will change his heart. And that's the beauty of God's design here. Men, when you, you hearing that? When, when, when you are married to a beautiful woman, you're, if you're only married to the physical beauty, this is, comes out in marriage counseling. Anybody's ever done marriage counseling, right? You talk to 20-somethings that are, they're just ooey-gooey and falling all over each other and they're slobbering all over each other and you're just, you're sick about watching it. You, you talk, you get to really dig down into the meat of the marriage covenant. We all who've been married for a while, and, and Dwayne and Joy, how many years you've been married now? Had an anniversary this weekend, is that correct? 32 years. Joy, is Dwayne still as handsome as he was when he was in his 20s? <laughs> so the physical attraction in a relationship is only the start to a grand, more grand, beautiful design of God for two people to grow together. And you love each other in a deeper, 
much more truthful way after 32 years than you ever did when you first got together. That's what Jesus is talking about here. So ladies, let's, when, let me get back to this idea. I want to close, kind of close with some of these. But this idea of being beautiful and dressing well, you want to dress beautifully. You want to be beautiful, ladies, for yourself, yes, but really are you wanting to grab the attention of others as well? It's part of it. That's why it's very important for, and I know that the ladies in this church, you teach the younger ladies this, be careful how you dress. This is not a legalistic thing crushing the freedom of the liberated woman. This is just wisdom. Be beautiful in how you dress, but know that people are watching. If you intend to dress in such a way as to cause someone's lustful intent on you, that is something to very cautiously consider based on what Jesus is saying here. Are you just as guilty as the man who is lustfully in desiring you? Something to ponder. Because it's the, it's the attitude of the heart. And so verses 29 through 30, now, if you took verses 29 through 30 of Matthew 5 literally, I think everyone in this room would be blind and lame. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Is Jesus literally meaning gouge out your eyes and cut off your hands? I hope no one in this room goes to that extreme. But what does he mean here? Seriously, it means be intent purposeful in stopping as much as you can control temptations that lead to this sin of the heart. If, men, you have a problem with pornography, throw out the computer. Get rid of it. Limit your data on your phone. Matter of fact, turn off the data on your phone if you have to. If necessary, whatever extreme measures must be taken to stop the sin that you know is dragging you down, do it. Ladies, if you have fantasies about another man that you know are not pure, what is it that you have to stop? Stop reading the romance novels, stop listening to uh, the soap, well, it used to be the soap operas, but whatever it is that leads you into these think, this way of thinking. If you are around other people who have crude sexual language and crude sexual talk, that they really drive this idea up in you, maybe it's ne- maybe time to stop those relationships. Whatever that takes, replace what is consuming your thoughts with the Word of God and all things holy, if necessary. Actually, I would say that would be a good idea for all of us, wouldn't it? Whatever is causing you to sin, figure out a way to stop it, avoid it, get away. That's what Jesus means in verses 29 through 30. 
It's an extreme example of tearing out your eye and cutting off your hand. But that's the point. Extreme measures may be needed, but don't physic, don't go out, don't come in here next week with a missing hand. Or an eye patch. I, I, I want to be very, feel very bad if I see somebody with that. What does Jesus mean here? The lust of the flesh is real. The desires and the cravings of the body are real. God made it. But it's through the sin of rejecting God's holiness and His will that has taken something beautiful and made it ugly. And we can be easily attracted to the beautiful and think that it's pure and realize once it's too late that we're stuck. Satan will use beauty to drag us down. Once you're hooked, maybe too late. Jesus is saying that to commit adultery is not just a physical act. It is a sin of the heart. Now, what's the hope here? Because the Mosaic law says if this happens, you are to take whoever is committing this act of adultery, both of them shall die. What does that mean? Does that mean we have no hope? Does Jesus say here that if, if you have committed adultery that you have no more hope? I don't think that's the theme of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is saying that He is the fulfillment of the law. He is the hope that the prophets of old looked forward to. The definition of righteousness itself is Jesus Christ. So if there is this sin in our lives, presently, in the past, even if the sin occurs in the future in an act of weakness, is there hope? I think there is. And this is just one description of one sin of many. And Jesus is teaching us that if the heart is purified, if the heart is possessed by Christ Himself, then we are new in Christ. He makes us new men and women, and as such, these passions, these desires, these cravings can come under control. God tells Cain, as he's struggling with murdering his brother, you must control the sin that is creeping up to corrupt you. Now, can we do this on our own? I would say no. And if we're honest with ourselves, it's no. That's why we depend on the Lord. That's why we depend on Christ. This is a good example of how Jesus says, your sin and your lustful passions will drive you to me if I can change you, if you will receive me, if you will allow me to love you. I am calling you to me. I will make you new. And these things that are controlling you will control you no more. Amen? I know that now the room's quiet. (laughs) This is not one of those laughing, joking sermons. It's not one of these laughing, joking 
passages because we know how difficult this is. We know that human trafficking is a big problem. It's the biggest problem we've got in this time uh, between how we relate to one another. It's one of these things that goes by quietly, discreetly, and I promise you, you walk out of these doors, there are hundreds, if not perhaps thousands of people in this community, in this region, who are probably suffering under this kind of torture. I want to ask us to really ponder what is our role? Do we prosper this in our hearts by feeding on the porn industry? on the romance novel, whatever you want to call it. Are our thoughts the thoughts of Christ? Or are our thoughts the thoughts of evil passion? Let me close in prayer. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for your word. And these are hard words for us to hear. These are hard words for us to ponder. These are hard words for us to even address, because we want to keep things like this in the dark, behind closed doors. But dear God, your son Jesus Christ loves us enough to speak the truth to us, and I thank you for Matthew's account here. Everyone of us in this room have dealt with this at one time or another. And I thank you, Lord, for being a God of grace that you see us in our circumstance and mercifully come to us and rescue us from it. Dear God, there are, there are men in this room right now that I, I know have a secret life. There are young ladies in this room, women in this room, who may even have secret thoughts and secret lives. God, I pray that you would cause us to be honest with you. I pray, God, that you would show us that whatever mistakes of the past there are, that if in we are in Christ, if you have redeemed us, that past does no, no longer defines us. But God, I pray for your love and your mercy upon anyone in this room, all of us in this room, who at time to time may struggle with this. I pray, God, that you would, at the moment of temptation, wake up within us and, and, and burn a fire within us to realize that this is wrong and cause us to see one another not as objects of desire, but as images of your beautiful creation. Cause us to love one another as we love you. Let this, these words sink into our souls. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.